Okay, everybody, Molly's on vacation. But first up, we have some solo dolo Jason news. SoftBank has reported the Vision Fund had a $21 billion investment loss last quarter. D2C beverage brand House does not have enough cash to continue operations. So we talk about how investors look at their portfolio and make tough decisions in this kind of a market. And then we go through my J trades. Ford trade so far, you got Stitch Fix, you got Amazon, you got Disney, you got Warner Brothers Discovery. One of them's up over 16% and one of them's down over 12%. We're gonna get into my J trading experiment. It's not investment advice. And then after we talk about J trading, we're gonna have the uh, CEO of NutriSense on the program. It's one of my early investments. They do continuous glucose monitoring, which I believe is gonna really help turn around this obesity epidemic. It's gonna be a great show, stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub helps all founders build a better startup at a lower cost from day one. Open to anyone with an idea, you'll get up to $150,000 in Azure credits, technical advisory, access to mentors and experts, free dev tools, and so much more. There's no funding requirement and it only takes minutes to join. Sign up today at aka.ms slash this week in startups. Assure is the leading provider of special purpose vehicles and fund administration with over 5,000 completed transactions and $2.5 billion under administration. Twist listeners can get 20% off their first SPV at assure.co slash twist. That's assure.co slash twist. And Prometheus solves the problem of visibility and access to alternative funds in a way that benefits investors, fund managers, and wealth advisors. Lower investment minimums means that millions of investors can get involved in alternatives and let professional investors do what they do best. Go to prometheusalts.com or download it on the App Store and use the access code TWIST to sign up. All right, in our first story, I think this will be one of the greatest videos in the history of investing. Uh, SoftBank reported the Vision Fund had a $21.7 billion investment loss in the quarter ending in June. If you don't know what SoftBank is, they are the ones who had the Vision Fund. The Vision Fund famously was investing in um, a large number of unicorns during the peak of the bubble we're just coming out of. We work famously Uber, DoorDash, many different companies, and they uh, were investing at very high valuations, famously 40 billion plus for WeWork. And they exited their entire position in Uber now at a gain, uh, which is pretty interesting. They had the largest venture fund ever. They raised $100 billion. Remember a lot of it from the kingdom from MBS. And uh, Masayoshi-san has been one of the great investors of our time, but he is a, to say he is a swing for the fences type investor, would be an understatement. He is a swing for the moon type investor. Uh, Masayoshi San didn't report on job cuts at SoftBank. And SoftBank is a publicly traded company, but it's essentially like a holding company. He famously invested in Alibaba. So those shares are in SoftBank, the Uber shares were in SoftBank, the DoorDash shares, etc. And based on this massive uh, collection of assets he has, he's able to take loans and then invest in more companies. And so he has been the most aggressive uh, investor in the history of venture capital and capital allocating. And this video where he does his quarterly report, uh, I've literally now watched it. Um, I'm on my second viewing of it. It is extraordinary. We'll play some clips from it in a moment. Here's what the Financial Times article quoted uh, covering the story said, San, Masayoshi San, 
this is his last name, said on Monday that SoftBank would now subject itself to dramatic group-wide cost-cutting exercise after a $59 billion investment gain at the two vision funds almost completely reversed over the past six months. In other words, they were up $59 billion on their investments. Now, just let that sink in. Almost $60 billion in profits over like a five-year run, essentially, from when he invest, started investing in Uber and making these huge bets. Uh, these were people were incredibly critical of these bets, but some of them did, in fact, pay off. SoftBank has a $71 billion market uh, cap right now. It's down massively from the peak, well over 50%. And let's get into his presentation. Uh, this is a chart of their quarterly net income and uh, how they've done since uh, 2017. And you can see, you know, yeah, they have most have mostly up quarters during this peak 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. These were like the incredible years of this boom. Um, and some losses, obviously, because you're swinging for the fences. But oh, my God, the last two quarters, uh, sequentially, Q4 and Q1 have been disastrous for them. Uh, the largest uh, loss in not only SoftBank's history, but in Japan's history, I think he said, I'm not sure if it's the largest loss in investment history either. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to take a look at. Uh, but if you look at how he kicks off the presentation, very dramatically, he showed a portrait of Tokugawa uh, Iyasu. This is the founder of the first shogun of Japan's uh, shogunate. They ruled Japan for 60 years during the 1800s. The portrait features uh, Tagawa frowning after losing a battle and having his army destroyed and barely making it out alive. Masa likens the famous Japanese shogun to himself in this 68 second, very dramatic clip. I'll see you on the other side of 68 seconds. This is a portrait of Tokugawa Ieyasu. He actually made a big loss against Takeda Shingen and came back in the background of that Tokugawa Ieyasu had to face Takeda Shingen, which is much, much larger army than theirs. And uh, most of the allies actually said uh, this is going to be the losing battle so that they should not go for it, but actually it's better to stay at the castle. However, Tokugawa Ieyasu didn't want to lose his face so that he get out from the castle, had a battle, made a complete loss and suffer uh, and came back and that actually learned lesson he tried to remember and remind uh, his own learnings and put it into this drawing so since the foundation of softbank group i made a two consecutive quarters loss so previous quarter and this time quarter consecutively we made three trillion yen level of the loss so in total six trillion yen loss uh, was made in the past six months so i believe i need to remind that myself pretty amazing like self-awareness here going out and the people of japan are very humble um they have a great sense of giri of responsibility and he takes total ownership of these bets and you as you're watching it you're you're seeing the lessons he learned betting on the late stage of uber uh which wound up being a, actually a huge hit for him he, he's now sold all of his uber shares and that's one of the things in the portfolio that's made him billions of dollars but he also talks about we work and famously if you've seen the we work documentaries podcasts hulu show uh, that we talked about here uh that was a pretty uh, brutal moment of hubris for him. And so he gets asked during the Q&A, in fact, the first question in the Q&A, about what he's learned, his lessons learned as an investor. Now, as a uh, capital allocator going into my second decade of doing it, I started with the company 
that he bet the farm on Uber. That was like my big hit, as you know, uh, as an angel about 11 years ago. And now I'm in my second year as a private market investor. And I've started doing J trading, which is investing in public companies. In a way, I'm not saying I'm modeling my career after Masayoshi san, but I am certainly looking at him and saying, what has he learned? Just like I said, what did Bill Gurley learn? What did Michael Moritz learn? What did Doug Leone learn during, you know, these moments of booms and busts and capital allocation, and really understanding how the public markets work and how they value companies and understanding how the private markets work, and then being able to combine them, I think makes you the ultimate investor. I think it makes you the ultimate business thinker, because you get to see companies in their nascent state when they're forming, and then as they're scaling, and they're becoming the largest companies in the world. And that's what I'm trying to thread the needle on. If you're watching the show, you're watching me learn, you're watching me build my team, add people to the team. And this clip, to me, was just amazingly clarifying, because Masa is 65 years old. He is one of the greatest investors of all time. He is absolutely, without question, the most audacious investor in the history of investing. Uh, and so here is just an amazing moment captured. So the lesson I learned are so many, but for Vision Fund 1, we were making a big swings, Uber, DD, WeWork. We had spent almost 1 trillion yen level of the uh, investment per case. So we've been making a big swing and couldn't hit the ball. That was uh, happened in the Vision Fund 1 because my feeling was very strong. My emotion was very strong to specific companies or business. So that's something that I learned. So we became more uh, systematic and also smaller tickets and try to make sure that uh, we have uh, better profitability in Vision Fund 2. So that's why that we became relatively smaller ticket size in Vision Fund 2 compared to Vision Fund 1. So rather than aiming for the home run, but uh, try to uh, aim for a first base hit or second base hit, make sure that we have a good hit. So I believe that we were on the kind of a bubble on valuations. So that's all my responsibility as a commander. Amazing. And he says there he put a trillion dollars into Uber DD, a trillion yen into Uber DD and WeWork each, which would be $7.4 billion into each company of the Vision Fund. I'm not sure if that's exactly correct, but I think he's saying approximately. And obviously, that's a translator speaking. Uh, that's not his voice. He doesn't speak in a female voice. But if you think about that, DD got delisted shut down by the Chinese government. They're in the process of uh, being, I believe, relisted on, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And the government, you know, has been really giving them a hard time. I think they, they were too successful, like Jack Ma. Uber made him money, and then WeWork was a complete disaster. But even WeWork, he might wind up pulling a rabbit out of a hat and getting to break even on that since he bought the whole enterprise. And it's um, done pretty well since then. But what's very interesting is he says, hey, listen, I got to hit singles and doubles. Now he's 65 years old. He's only hit Grand Slams, Alibaba being the biggest one, Uber being the next biggest one. He's a Grand Slam slugger who's now saying, I'm going to maybe I should hit some singles and doubles. That's a moment of clarity in terms of thinking for somebody who's been at this for decades. If you're running a startup, you know that every little bit of help counts between running your team, building the product, getting compliant, hiring people, studying customer support, everything. It's overwhelming. I know that. I work with y'all every day, but the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is here to help you. They're going to help you build a better startup from day one. 
whether you're plugged into Silicon Valley or not. The Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub is a digital platform created by founders for founders, and they give you amazing benefits. The first one right off the bat, unbelievable, up to $150,000 in Azure credits, and then one-to-one technical advisory on scalability, best practices, security, your tech stack, all that stuff, and you get access to a huge mentor network, plus free dev tools like GitHub Enterprise, access to partners like OpenAI, Bubble, and others, free Microsoft software, including Outlook and Teams, and much, much more. The program is open to everyone. There's no fundraising requirements. You don't need to know somebody. They want to support all founders. It takes just five minutes to apply, and startups get all these massive benefits immediately. So learn more and sign up for Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub today at you're going to write this down right now. Stop what you're doing. Get a pen, get a paper, aka.ms slash this week in startups. That's simple. aka.ms slash this week in startups. I disagree with him. <laughs> just going to put it out there. If he was up 59, almost $60 billion, and he had just sold a third of his position along the way, if he had trimmed the big winners as he went and banked some wins and built up some cash reserves, they wouldn't have had this huge loss. This would have been much less to um, to bear. And I think that's the, the lesson for me is actually, I think his big bets were pretty amazing. Now, you can't make each of those work. And there is a problem with the bubble. The market was very frothy. He came in, he arguably created the bubble. So let's just pause there for a second. He's saying there was a bubble. And this is where I think maybe he has a blind spot, or maybe he didn't actually think to say this. In truth, what he should have said was, I created a bubble. I wanted these companies to get so big that I overfunded them. And this is where we must pause and think about the overfunding of companies. Uh, we had uh, Tina Sharkey on from Brandless. I think they had received 100 or $200 million from SoftBank. A lot of these companies received so much money from SoftBank because they had so much money to put to work. When you have a $100 billion fund, you can't give somebody $25 million. You got to give them more money. Uh, when you meet we work or uber you want to give them a ton of money to try to make them the huge winner to block everybody else to go on this global expansion so what should you do if you're a founder and you're faced with that situation the optimal situation is to take the money at the high valuation but deploy it slowly which is in fact what uber did uber kept a lot of that money they kept building up the war chest uh, and that gave them the ability to work out all these issues and be uh the la the proverbial last man standing last person standing in this great uh, battle uh, amongst the um, on-demand economy companies. DoorDash also raised a lot of money from Masayoshi-san, uh, and they also are one of the last people standing here. But WeWork imploded. So why? What's the difference? Well, WeWork uh, took all that money, and they did not stick to their knitting. What made WeWork particularly special was that they found locations where there were massively under-market rents. And then they convinced tech people by having a really beautiful modern interior and a culture and a there there a group of people who were hip and cool, maybe a lot of uh, gender diversity and beer and parties. Uh, as you saw in the documentary it was a specific specific part of his vision. Uh, I'm talking about Adam Newman now was to have a lot of women in the space, a lot of parties, uh, maybe a little gender diversity so people could meet their future spouse or somebody they could date and have this crazy uh, party. They did this so well that they convinced people to put their office space, including my team, which had office space at the WeWork in the Tenderloin, 
literally the worst possible place you could ever have an office was the Tenderloin on Turk and Taylor Street where WeWork had set up one of their first locations. They got it so cheap that space and they were probably charging $100 a square foot net net when you looked at what you paid for. And they probably rented it for 20 or $30 a square foot. And they got that huge spread. Then what did they do when they got all this money? He started looking for premier buildings on the most expensive rent districts, and then was underselling them. So they flipped their model. And this is where jet fuel, which is what venture capital is. Venture capital is jet fuel. It's designed to make rockets go fast and to get escape velocity. The rocket is the startup, the jet fuel is the money, escape velocity is profitability. When you look at this metaphor, what you can do with the jet fuel, if you're savvy is you can put it in tanks. And you got all these tanks on your property and you got a rocket ship factory over here. And like Uber did, they could say, we're going to do India, we're going to go to Japan, we're going to go to Australia. And we're going to put a little bit of fuel in each of these rockets. We're going to do Uber freight, we're going to do Uber VTOLs, we're going to do Uber self driving, we're going to do Uber pool. And they put a little bit of jet fuel into each of those rockets to see if they got escape velocity. Some did, some didn't. Uber pool probably didn't work, but it was a good experiment. Uber in um, China and Russia, they wound up selling their assets to the people there. So they got the silver metal, not the gold. In other words, they used the jet fuel aggressively, but intelligently. Now there's a big difference between then taking your rocket and throwing it into the fuel tank and then lighting the fuel tank on fire. That's what we worked in. That's not how jet fuel works. So jet fuel can blow up. That's what Brandless did, I think, too. Like, they were just drowning in jet fuel. You have to be very careful with the jet fuel. It's volatile, and it will blow up your startup. It's fine to take a bunch of jet fuel, but put it in a stable tank away from the factory. That's why the factory is over here, and the jet fuel is over here. They put a little bit of distance, like a parking lot, or five parking lots between those two things, so the jet fuel doesn't blow up the factory. This is basic physics. You don't need to have uh, a PhD to understand this. And unit economics is what all this comes to. Um, if you look at the unit economics of, um, you know, DoorDash, Uber, uh, and WeWork, they were using that fuel, right, to get more consumption. So how do you get people to consume more of a product? You make it super cheap, you make the ride so cheap that people can't help tell their friends about it. You make it so convenient to get a delivery that people are like, why would I go to the store if I can get this delivered to me for free? And then you make a habit out of it. And then you slowly increase the prices to reality. And if you can thread that needle, you'll see what happened to Uber in the last quarter, you'll see it happen with DoorDash, and we saw it happen with Amazon. That's the Silicon Valley playbook. You can discount a price to get more people to use a product. And if you do that, and you do it wisely, uh, you can use that jet fuel to get escape velocity and build a huge world changing business. And that's what Masa is in uh, the business of doing. So I love the fact that he's thinking about singles and doubles, but he did create the bubble in many ways. He wrote that $4 billion check to WeWork at a $47 billion valuation after a 20 minute meeting with Adam Newman. And so, you know, WeWork is now worth like $4 billion, like, a, you know, less than a 10th. And so Masa gave uh, the following quote, when we were turning out big profits, I became somewhat delirious. And looking back at myself now, I am quite embarrassed and remorseful. I think that is maybe overstating it a bit. I don't think he should lose his aggressive tendencies. I think he should continue to be aggressive. What you have to look at is with WeWork, I believe WeWork's previous round was 10 billion. And then he went all the way up to 47 billion. What he should have done is been more aggressive and said, Hey, I'll, I'll give you a billion dollars at a $15 million valuation, right? But you have to love that he is honorable, and that he takes ownership of this. And he's a good steward of capital at the end of the day. 
Um, because I do believe that even though he's upside down right now, he could make this actually turn into a big winning portfolio. Even though he overpaid, there are in the documents the ability to get his money out first, right? So there's a, a couple of concepts here in venture capital. If you even if you invest at these high valuations, your money comes out first, so you sort of have a backstop. SoftBank did sell the rest of their Uber holdings between April and July at an average price of $41.47 per share for a gain of $1.5 billion. So it was still a, a very profitable trade for them. They first invested in Uber in 2018 and was a larger, they were the largest shareholders at one point. Uh, but this would explain a lot of the downward pressure on Uber shares as well as that they were clearing that big position. I had heard that through the grapevine. Along with Uber, SoftBank also sold its stake in Opendoor, healthcare company Guardian and Chinese real estate company uh, Beiku. So this is interesting because I asked which SPAC people thought was the most promising for a J trade, and they've been saying open door. So I will be looking at open door this week as a potential J trade, and I'm looking for your feedback. We'll go to J trading in a minute. And shout out to our friend Keith Roboy. Uh, in total, this resulted in a $5.6 billion gain for SoftBank. So they're selling uh, what I would argue is their winners to get some cash in the bank. Uh, they should have done this earlier. Obviously, that's in hindsight. Despite this, SoftBank's Vision Fund still reported a loss of $21.7 in the quarter ending July. And so that was SoftBank's fiscal Q1 technically. But again, they're a holding company. So these assets can rise and fall. And in fact, their shares in Alibaba, which I think were at 300 are now at 90, those lost two thirds, right? They're trading at a third. And a large portion of SoftBank's value is the Alibaba stake according to market watch softbank will buy back up to 400 billion yen or about 3 billion of its own shares over the next year to try and boost its share price closer to the net asset value net asset value very simply is the value of all these investments they have so softbank has the vision fund which is their venture arm that's the majority of their assets that's what that value is when we, we look at the value of the company their net asset value is essentially those vision funds, that's where all the holdings are, including Alibaba, Alibaba's lost 300. Uh, Alibaba's lost two thirds of its value. So as Alibaba goes, SoftBank goes, and they're going to buy back a bunch of their own shares, uh, 400 billion yen or about 3 billion of its own shares over the next year, to try and boost their uh, share price closer to asset value. They also talked in this uh, discussion about their uh, loan ratio to their asset value, which they can control. And so they've been basically have loans of something in the range of 15 16% on the value of all these assets. When you look at SoftBank, it's essentially like a holding company of a bunch of public assets and private assets, which is what I'm trying to do in my career is uh, trade both those. So I'm very fascinated by SoftBank just as a public entity that you can study and watch as they accumulate all these positions in companies. If you're an accredited investor, you need to know about special purpose vehicles. What's an SPV? It's an investment vehicle that allows 250 accredited investors to invest up to $10 million via one entry on a startup's cap table. So if you're an angel investor, you got a bunch of rich friends, maybe your poker buddies, you could start your own syndicate powered through SPVs, just like me. At thesyndicate.com, we are powered by our friends over at Shure. My syndicate has over 10,000 members and almost 5,000 of them have already done a deal and I've done over 250 deals thanks to my friends at Assure. They do all this backend and fund administration for me. They're the leading provider of SPVs and fund administration in the world with over $2.5 billion in AUA, assets under administration. And they've completed, wait for it, over 5,000 transactions. Nobody's done more. Nobody's done it better. 
They've developed their own innovative software called Glassboard to automate the entire investment experience from entity formation all the way to IPO. And not only do investors love it, but founders love this process as well because it keeps their cap tables nice and clean. And so you can trust them. They're really hardworking and they do a great job, super responsive. To get 20% off your first special purpose vehicle, visit assure.co slash twist, A-S-S-U-R-E dot C-O slash twist. That's assure.co slash twist to get 20% off your first SPV. Investor uh, Shield... Monat uh, of Better Tomorrow Ventures tweeted a thread on SoftBank's Vision Fund today. Uh, we'll have Shiel on the program at some point. He said, SoftBank Vision Fund 1 is marked at $135 billion if you believe their marks, plus 35% in five years. SPY is plus 70% during this time. Problem is I don't believe their marks. So that's an interesting issue here is, do we believe the marks, the private company values inside of SoftBank's holdings uh, in relation to their net asset value. The public ones are easy. Just look at the stock price, how many shares they own, boom, you know. With the private ones, somebody's got to put the value on it. SoftBank does this themselves. How conservative are they? Who knows? But he did say they look at the public comps to uh, price their private market investments. And so uh, it's going to be very interesting to look uh, over the years and see what happens with all of these um, public and private companies. One slide in the deck I thought was uh, particularly interesting uh, was this chart, uh, which if you're watching us at youtube.com slash this weekend, uh, you can see the Vision Fund one investments and their SoftBank's gross gains and their multiple uninvested capital, MOIC, as we call it in the business, multiple uninvested capital, Uber, plus 1.5 billion, uh, but only 1.2x MOIC. They exited that position. In other words, the multiple on the invested capital. So they only made a modest return there. DoorDash, $7.1 billion gross gain, 11.5 moik, right? So the multiple on invested capital in a venture fund, you know, you're hoping for 3x kind of. Uh, so whatever cash came in, you got to 3x coming out of that. And they're still holding uh, their DoorDash, apparently. Slack, 3x moik. WeWork, not yet exited. DD, uh, $9.3 billion loss. WeWork is a $3 billion loss, not yet. Uh, exited grab uh, $329 million loss, again, not yet exited. So they're holding on to some positions, we'll see. But I thought was most interesting was the approved investment amount at Vision Funds. And uh, they said this highlighted their investment discipline. Q1 in 2021, Q2, Q3, Q4, you see a plummet from 20 billion, 12 billion, 9.6 billion, 2.4 billion, and then last quarter, uh, 600 million. This actually might be a mistake. <laughs> if you could actually deploy uh, money, uh, you would want to deploy it now when the valuations are low. But unfortunately, they didn't take chips off the cable. They didn't uh, apparently have a lot of cash here. They're dealing with these huge losses. Now would be the perfect time to be buying into these companies, which is what I'm trying to do with J trading. And I'm trying to do privately. So sure, great to have more discipline. But my Lord, if you gave Masayoshi san, you know, $10 million to deploy now he could buy a lot of great companies, I think at very low prices. And this will be something we'll continue to watch. So if you haven't seen the video, I posted it over at inside.com. We'll put it in the show notes here. Um, it's worth watching, I think, especially if you're a capital allocator, watch the whole video. I really enjoyed watching it. Another hot market was D2C brands direct to consumer and friend of our pod, uh, Helena Prince Hambrick uh, was on the pod talking about her company house. Remember, they were the low alcohol direct-to-consumer drink uh, based out of Sonoma County. They'd raised a seed round and uh, with a bunch of famous folks. And in a tweet thread today, like an hour before I went on air, uh, Helena wrote that their lead investor declined to move forward with their Series A and they were in the process of closing. 
She said they're going through an ABC. Uh, this is an assignment for the benefit of creditors. If you've never heard that I haven't heard this term since uh, maybe after the dot com era and a little bit after 2008. Basically, it means you're going to shut down, you're going to sell all the assets, and then you're going to give the money to your creditors. So the creditors here, uh, they could have some loans, they could have employees who are owed money, they could have equipment leases, they could have rent, they could have uh, inventory that they've bought. So there's a list of creditors, the creditors all put in their claims, they sell everything, they take the money, it's essentially similar to a, um, a bankruptcy. And these DTC brands have been hard. It does not surprise me. I think you'll see a lot of these ABCs. One of the things that happens with these ABCs is that there is an opportunity, if you're super brave to buy the brand. So if somebody really loved the house brand, you might be able to come in and they raised a $4.5 million seed round. So maybe there's $4.5 million invested in this company plus all the work that people did in it. Okay, let's say you uh, look at the house brand and you're like the logo, the goodwill of the brand. What is that worth? Well, and maybe the customer list, if there's 10,000 people in the customer list, and you put a value of $10 on each of them or $100 that could be worth, you know, 100,000 or a million dollars, but let's just say $25 for each of the people on the customer list. And I'm making a number up, there's 10,000 of them. Okay, $250,000 in value in that list. And let's say if you were to build the brand or all the marketing that's been done, and if you were to build it, uh, over again, and maybe there's some inventory. So maybe there's $100,000 in inventory somewhere that you could buy for 25,000. Uh, maybe you could buy the list instead of for 250k for 25,000. And maybe the logo and the website and the domain name for 50,000, you might be able to buy all these assets for $100,000 and then try to restart it, you'd have a clean cap table. And so sometimes what you'll see is somebody who is in love with the brand has an affinity for it. Well, then just take 100 grand and buy the asset. I almost did this with mouth.com. We were investors in mouth.com and somebody wound up buying it. I don't remember what it eventually sold for, but a couple of hundred grand and we had a couple of hundred grand into the company. And I really loved the domain name and I really loved the branding, but I didn't want to run the business. I didn't have anybody to run the business. So some other company bought the mouth.com assets uh, when they went out. And so you'll see a lot of this in the dot com era. Uh, we saw a lot of it. After 2008, we saw some of it, and I predict you'll see a lot of this. And I actually tried to buy the Cosmo brand, Cosmo.com, which was like GoPuff, 15-minute delivery service in New York City, and uh, JP Morgan wouldn't sell it to me. I also tried to buy the Path.com brand. Um, I thought that was a cool like social network brand, and I was going to try to buy it and get Dave Moore into give me this blessing to maybe pursue it as like a private social network. Uh, but the company that had bought it, I think it was a Korean company, they weren't interested in selling it to me. So sometimes these brands just die, and um, it's really sad. And we'll see a lot of this, I believe, you know, I don't know about blaming the series a investor who didn't come through. It's a dynamic market. If the company was really strong, they might have had five offers. The the challenge is I think D to C requires a lot of patience. And the return profile is hard. And so what's happening here, and this is no dig to the team at house is if you're a venture capitalist, you're looking at your 50 investments of active companies, you might have two funds, you got invested in 100 companies, you got 50 left. You're gonna look at those 50. And you're gonna say three buckets, the winners, the companies that are the losers or just not going to make it they're losing a ton of money and then everybody in between. It's very easy to say, Okay, we have some dry powder here, we've got some capital left, let's put all of that money into the winners, the winners will then increase our funds winnings in a down market. And those fund managers are panicking right now saying, we got to put every dollar of dry powder we have into whatever our winning companies are, so that the fund I was talking about Moik before the multiple invested capital, so the Moik goes up. 
So let's say your fund is currently 2x Moik, and you want to get to three and you got some dry powder. Are you going to put it into the company that doesn't have product market fit has some product market fit or has strong product market fit? It's as easy as that. If there's a company with strong market fit, you have to put every dollar into the ones with strong, you have to be cutthroat about it at a time like this. Because you're not at the beginning of your life cycle, you're in a down market, just like Masayoshi san is being cutthroat. And he's blaming himself. That's actually happening as a microcosm inside of venture funds. If they're smart, I have to deal with this. Masayoshi son has to deal with it and everybody in between. If you're a founder, you need to have an honest discussion with yourself, which bucket am I in? Am I strong product market fit? I'm going to be okay, as long as I don't run out of capital, and I keep myself cashed up moderate, medium product market fit. Okay, I'm gonna have to make cuts. I'm going to have to really focus on that product market fit and really focus on getting some cash in the door so I can thread the needle here. So if there is a little bit of leftover capital, I might be able to convince people I'm in that bucket or I'm moving into that bucket. But if you're in this bucket way down here, it's over. There's no other way for me to tell you it's over. You'll have conversations with VCs. They might take the call, but they're not going to have the ability to really give you the two years of capital you need to get there in this market. And that's the reality you're going to have to face is you might have to go into what we call in the business cockroach mode. What's cockroach mode? Everybody's laid off, we're going to have two people who are working half time to keep the brand alive and fulfill orders until we get to the other side of this. And ABC like an assignment for the benefit of creditors is the extreme version of that you might have a month of runway. And what you can do in these situations I've seen done is somebody can come in and say I will give a loan to the company of $250,000. But I am senior to everybody. And I get if the company doesn't raise money, that 250 K is going to convert into a million dollars paid back to me and 20% of the company. And if it doesn't happen, and we do not raise the million dollars, I own the company, essentially, I own all the assets. And so those kind of really cutthroat deals are what I witnessed, I, I really sadly witnessed a lot of my friends go through it. And essentially, then founders quit. And then all of the companies that didn't have product market fit get flushed out of the ecosystem. And what happens when all of them get flushed out of the ecosystem? Well, when they all get flushed out of the ecosystem, all that talent then goes to what's left, what's left companies with partial product market fit, they're triangulating, they're getting close and strong companies, which then makes those companies stronger. So let that sink in. That's the cycle we're going through. And the way out of the cycle is for the talent at companies without product market fit, and I'm not saying house is one of them. I'm, I'm not I'm not jumping, uh, I don't want to beat up on house here. But any company that's going to go out because uh, we don't know the details of that, but the companies without product market fit, all the talent there that are working really hard banging their head against the wall trying to figure this stuff out, they go to the strong companies, which that makes the strong companies even stronger, which makes them profitable, which makes them go public, which makes the VCs distribute money to their LPs. And thus the cycle starts again. Here end of the lesson. I want to tell you about an awesome new community. It's an app. It's called Prometheus, and I'm addicted to it. It's basically a hyper focused version of Twitter, but it's focused on markets, venture capital, trading stocks, and it's filled with people who are fund managers and who are capital allocators. It's like my dream come true. And if you love twist and you're into that stuff, then you've got to go sign up for Prometheus at prometheusalts.com right now. And here's the secret sauce. This is a bunch of fund managers and potential LPs on a platform talking to each other about raising capital, deploying capital. I started putting my J trades on there and I'm getting tremendous feedback from the community. If you're an accredited investor, Prometheus is going to help you find new fund managers to back like me. 
And if you're a fund manager like I am, <laughs> you're also going to be able to get access to potential new LPs, limited partners. If you're just a civilian, you're not an LP, you're not running a fund yet, but you're into tech. Well, you can just go there and you can learn. And it's really the only platform where you can talk to these verified professional fund managers. It's all signal. It's no noise. Prometheus solves the problems of visibility and access to alternative funds. And it has lower investment minimums, so more investors can get involved. Here's what I want you to do. You go to Prometheus Alts, P-R-O-M-E-T-H-E-U-S-A-L-T-S.com, or you just type in Prometheus and uh, you find it in the App Store, but you have to use the promo code TWIST, TWIST, to get in. All right, let's go to J Trading. Just a quick update. I've made four trades to date. I have the domain name jtrading.com. I'm not saying this is coming to CNBC or Bloomberg, uh, but I mean, wouldn't that be fun if I had my own show about trading uh, after Jim Cramer? And I just, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, all my trades are up at jtrading.com. You can see what price I got in. Remember, the goal here is for me to learn. I am a neophyte at trading public equities. I don't do that. I've never done it. I've always thought I had no edge. Now, I recognize I have no edge, but I want to learn. And so the vehicle for me learning will be jtrading.com. I'm going to put a million or $2 million into this as my current intention. I could change that. I could put more. I could put less. I could shut the whole thing down. Who knows? Now, why do I want to learn public market investing? Well, I find myself having to figure out when to distribute Robinhood shares, Uber shares, uh, all these companies of mine going public or companies that are pre-going public could go public, could never go public. They might SPAC. Desktop Metal went out on a SPAC. All of these companies, I as a private market investor, I'm now running into the public markets. And I'm learning about the public markets just by a function of that and having to do distributions. But I would like to be an expert at it. And I think that'll take me five or 10 years to be, have some level of expertise, but I'd like to go faster. If I can become an expert in five years or less, I think that'd be a good goal for me. So I set a pretty audacious goal, which is to learn in public and to try to find companies that could 5x in 10 years. In other words, beat the market, beat the index, maybe not what I would expect to do in venture, but actually a 5x fund in venture would be top like 2% or something or 1%. But that I'd like to set an outrageous goal for myself. And right now I've made four bets. And I'll just go through those bets just very quickly with you. I did stitch stitch fix because I saw Bill Gurley, who's an insider buy a million shares or so. So I thought, hmm, insiders, this is but one theory, if insiders are buying the stock, and they've been with it as a private company, and he's been with as a public company, maybe that's a good signal, I'll place a small bet at what 5000 shares. Uh, and that's up. And then if you look at the percentage, that's up, I think the percentage is 16.43, si over 16%. This is not investment advice. This is not investment advice. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning in public. If you follow these trades, which one of my friends told me they're going to do, I told them, please, if you're going to follow these trades, do it with money you can afford to lose because I don't know what I'm doing. The goal here is to learn. And I need you, the audience and anybody who's an expert on this stuff to tell me when I'm wrong. So I'm going to talk about each trade. I'm going to give my thinking here on air. I'm going to talk about it on Twitter, I'm going to tell you my theories, uh, and then try to have you tell me it's a stupid theory. So is following insiders a stupid theory? Well, I did that. And I'm up 16% on this. So I'm feeling like maybe I need to do another J trade, where I follow another insider into their shares. Uh, I saw that the CEO of iHeartRadio, Bob Pittman had bought some shares in his own company. I don't know how much that is in relation to his net worth. I know Dara at Uber last year was buying a bunch of shares of Uber. So who knows? I think I'm going to find more insiders buying their own shares. Then number two, Disney. Why did I buy Disney? I feel like these brands will last for the ages. And my theory on that was there is going to be a fundamentally new business 
in having a billion subscribers. Remember, Disney was not really in the subscription business, right? They were in the IP business, they would license their content to other people. And now a direct one on one relationship with customers. I said it on CNBC years ago, I know Disney has been not a great company in terms of returns. But mm, they're getting to hundreds of millions of paid subscribers. They own Star Wars, they own Pixar, they own the Disney characters, they own Marvel, uh, they own parks, I think the subscription they're just scratching the surface. The amount of easy wins that they have not accumulated is ridiculous. Inside of the Disney Plus app, there's no merch. Who is running Disney right now? Chappic. Listen to me. This is a message for Chappic. I don't know you. But for the love of God, let Disney Plus sell merch. My kids are in it all day. After they watch Encanto, upsell them on Encanto stuff when they're watching the Mandalorian. Let them buy baby Grogu. We bought three baby Grogu's three daughters, three baby Grogu's. I spent more on baby Grogu's than I have on Disney plus. Let it sink in Chappic. Okay, listen to Jcal. I'm J trading your stock. I own how many shares do I have? 250 shares. I need a voice Chappic. Cut this and send it to him. In the Disney app, you have my credit card. There's a website called Amazon. It has something called one click. You could have one click inside of Disney plus. I'm looking at Marvel and it says buy the comic book, buy the t shirt. Why can't I buy Disney theme park tickets inside of Disney plus? Why don't you upsell me when I'm watching Star Wars on that crazy $5,000 Star Wars experience? Why is it you feel like uh, you don't like money? You don't want to grow the stock? We're trying to get 5x out of the stock. You're going to have to be more aggressive. I like how you're sacrificing your kids to advertising so you can see the Disney stock appreciate. I want my kids marketed to <laughs> because this is going to pay for their college. This is their trust funds if, if I give them trust funds. Okay, so Disney, I'm up 5%. Now, this is all in a month. But my theory, again, is Disney will have one billion subs. I also think uh, Warner Brothers uh, Discovery could also be join that 500 million to a billion club. But we need to get Grogu purchases on the menu there. And then for Warner Brothers, it's very similar. They got to get their di they, they've got to get everything dialed in. My Amazon share is up 6.5%. Uh, so I'm winning there. That's my biggest position in dollars. I have a 1000 shares of Amazon. I'm getting my ass kicked by this uh, Warner Brothers discovery. I bought 3000 shares. I'm down six dimes. I'm down 12, almost 13%. Uh, as of this morning, I think I'm buying more. I think I'm buying more. The chaos leads me to want to buy more because HBO discovery, these brands, CNN, I think they own CNN too. And HBO, man, these things aren't going anywhere. DC Comics. And I think Zaslov is a killer. I think Zaslov will do whatever it takes to pay down the debt to make that cash register saying to fire people to reorganize. He's a murderer. Zaslov is a, an assassin. He's a killer. I think Warner Bros. Disney had something like $50 billion in long term debt. They have a lot of debt from this merger, and they will slowly pay it down from profits. Uh, but it's good to have a little bit of debt and invest in the brands. That's my belief. Uh, but it's definitely something and Michael Burry, it's his third largest holding, I believe. So that's the guy from the big short. And that's another there I have is like, follow the winners. Michael Burry, I think bought his shares at like $25. So he's sunk. 
So J-Cal got in at 16, Michael Burry got in at 25. Now this thing's trading at 14, I think. I might just buy more. I might buy more. Because I think there'll be three or four winners in this space. Uh, Netflix, I might have missed my opportunity there. Uh, but with Warner Brothers Discovery, man, I think that's going to become a juggernaut. I think that could be huge. That's a J trading. Now, if you want to check it out, jtrading.com. My next theory is that SPACs are so derided and hated at this point. And people have so little faith in, you know, the collection of SPACs that came out. And I gave people a warning about them that like you're you're investing like a venture investor if you're investing in these companies and the yolo craziness where everybody was like i don't need to understand the revenue i don't need to understand the growth i don't need to understand product market fit that all went out the door and that to me and nobody is looking in this pile there's a big pile of SPACs. somewhere in there i believe is a 10 or a 20x i want to find the 10 or 20x in the SPAC pile so here's what i want you to do this is your homework uh for j traders out there I need you to look at the price to sales ratios. I need you to look at the earnings. I need you to look at growth. I need you to look at management. I need you to look at the product. We're looking for a management team that is hardcore. We're looking for, you know, like Amazon hardcore, or like Tesla hardcore management team. Like we're going to win Zaslav. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Slutman level management. Wartime CEOs. I need assassins, killers, samurai. So number one, in the SPAC pile, I'm looking for three things. Number one, killer, killers running the company. Number two, a product that is transcendent, that people love, that they won't shut up about. Okay, product, product, product. Okay, and then we want to see growth. We want to see some sign of life here that that product market fit and that killer team is actually resulting in the cash register ringing. That's my three criteria. You're the J trading army. You're my J traders. I need you to get out there and then give me some ideas. I'm looking for ideas. Okay. I need your ideas. Is it open door? Is it Joby? Is it desktop metal? There's something in the SPAC stack that's going to go 10x or 20x. There must be, right? And nobody's looking there. So if nobody's looking there and everybody's buying Amazon and now they're buying Stitch Fix because me and Bill Gurley are in it. We got to go find the next name. We got to go find the next name. I need you to slide into my DMs or email Jason at Calacanis.com, producers at thisweekinstartups.com, and get me the next big win. I think it may be open doors on that short list. Everybody keep, I know it's down 40% or so in the last six months, but people keep telling me to check out Open Door. Hmm. Hmm. And, and don't IPOF me. Don't talk to me about Chamat's facts. Chamat's my guy. We're besties. But please, please, I am not responsible for Chamath. Chamath is not responsible for JCal. We're friends. Don't come to me and ask me what IPOF is. I don't know what IPOF is. Okay? And if you reply to me and say some conspiracy theory about IPOF, I will snap block you on Twitter. Because I don't have time to be speculating. And then somebody's going to think that I know something I don't. I'm not trading Chamath SPACs. I'm not trading ipof please make your own investment decisions it's not investment advice jtrading.com all right next up on the program is alex skrill he is the ceo of nutrisense of which i'm an investor and in. they've been crushing it and we break down uh why the company has done so well and uh why continuous glucose monitoring could be the secret to weight loss and health 
and getting rid of the obesity problem in America. Why does your glucose spike? Well, I use this continuous monitoring device. I used NutraSense. I fell in love with it. I invested in the company. And this is a great interview. So stick with us. All right, Molly, next on the program is an entrepreneur that uh, we invested in. Uh, his name is Alex Skrill, and he's from NutraSense. This is a SaaS platform uh, that I wanted to try because, you know, I was struggling with my weight, and I was trying to understand what was going in in my chemistry. Mm -hmm. And NutraSense lets customers track their glucose levels, and it also combines it with a coach, which is exactly what I was looking for. A company was formed in uh, 2019. And we actually uh, had them at the first remote demo day, which right. was uh, in December of 2020. We started that program remote demo day for people who are listening remote demo day.com, just as a way to meet founders during the pandemic. And then we wound up investing from our third fund and our syndicate invested uh, a bit of money. And uh, we've been delighted with the results since then the company has uh, over 8000 paying customers back in q1 of 2021 they did 484,000 and this year in q1 they did 1.7 million plus so four times revenue and you know, we've talked about this as you've become an investor molly you're, you're looking to see if your companies can you know double triple revenue and when you mm -hmm. got a company that's doing something in that range or better in this case uh, that's really really great and the product works because it's not just giving your blood glucose level. They're also tracking sleep and diet and you can put in the food that you're eating. And then all of a sudden, the coach was like, Hey, what did you eat here? What was the spike? Uh, and it turned out for me, Molly cereal was the killer and mm. the order mm -hmm. in which I was eating food. So then I switched to eating vegetables, then protein, and then maybe having any dessert, sugar, flour, carbs, man, did that change the profile of my glucose spiking, and it really helped me with my weight loss. So welcome to the program, Alex. Hey, Alex, welcome. We're not just an investor, it's we're customers too. <laughs> uh, Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, it is always something with day and like cereal, right? In the mornings where you're just like, oh, wow, like this, this cornflakes or whatever I've been eating is uh, spiking my sugar like crazy. It was weird. I was doing it at night, actually, I would get like, super hungry at night. And now uh, what I'll do is I'll just have either full fat ice cream, uh, or and I'll just have a scoop or two, or I will have Greek yogurt. Um, and sometimes I'll sprinkle in some uh, keto granola, a couple pieces of fruit or whatever. And man, you know, getting your blood sugar level under control is a key part of weight loss. Is that what people are using NutriSense mostly for? Are these quantified self people? Are these people who are overweight? Who's using NutriSense? Who's the ideal? customer who are these 8,000 people paying to monitor their their glucose level and have a yeah yeah I mean when we went into this you know my expectation was it is going to be a lot of folks who are quantified self uh who are more data-driven performance optimizers uh but what we realize is that those folks are fairly educated on their diet they're fairly healthy and they're doing it out of curiosity more than anything uh and the people who are getting the most value out of the actual program were the regular folks like like us, you know, not, not professional athletes. Uh, they were the people who were struggling with weight loss, struggling with prediabetes in the family or type two diabetes in the family. Um, and really trying to understand what it is they should eat for the long term to stay healthy as long as possible to be able to, you know, stay healthy into their fifties and sixties, uh, and never develop diabetes in the first place. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the science, like this idea that glucose monitoring is such a key. I have a mom who's type one diabetic. And I do feel like I've been sort of saying for and really, really one of my mm -hmm. closest friends. And there is this sort of like, wait a second, if we all ate like a diabetic, it seems like we could be 
healthier. So talk about the science of like how monitoring glucose levels does play into weight loss and health. Yeah. So I actually think monitoring in general uh, should play a much larger role in, in healthcare, right? Like if we, if we think about how we do healthcare now, it's very much about reacting to acute things that happen. You go to a doctor, they say, oh, something's out of whack. Uh, you need to take medication. You, you need to have a procedure, but that's sick care, right? You, you just diagnose like something serious and now we need to treat it rather than following following your data and your trends while you're healthy and understanding when your trends are becoming unhealthy in the first place, right? If you think about how we diagnose cars and planes and software, uh, all of these things, you know, we're monitoring every single aspect, every single uh, component and making sure everything's working correctly. Uh, but with us, with humans, we're just kind of waiting for something to break until we, you know, and at that point, we try to treat it. Um, and so glucose, uh, you know, my journey started with monitoring my cholesterol, which is much harder to do because you need to do, you know, constant lipid testing. You need to understand. Uh, and it became so tedious that I actually got my own cholesterol testing machine at home. Uh, and it's kind of similar. You know, you kind of prick your finger, collect some blood, but you get the data much more frequently and you can actually correlate that data with what you're doing, right? Like I ate a high fat or a keto and here's what happened. Or... Uh, I switched to high carb and here's what happened. And so that consistent monitoring and having that data is, is, is what I think is really beneficial here. Uh, glucose in particular was interesting because of the technology that was available, right? So when you look at the type one diabetes space, uh, the CGM devices have become cheaper and more uh, effective over the last 10 years. And CGM is continuous glucose monitoring. Sorry, not to interrupt. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah, CGMs are the continuous glucose monitors. Uh, I mean, they've become fairly tiny, almost, uh, they're still slightly invasive. Uh, there's a little uh, little filament that kind of goes under your skin, mm-hmm. uh, but it's basically That's quarter like the, sized. It's like the little jobby that you wear on your arm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a little quarter sized white puck that sits on your arm uh, and it just sits there for 14 days, uh, just tracking your glucose levels the whole time. Uh, and what's great about that is, you know, as you're tracking your meals, you don't have to remember what you ate. You just can, you know, make a note, take a photo. Uh, and then you can see the glucose spike associated with that food. Uh, and a lot of people discover exactly what Jason discovered, which is like, hey, this cereal I've been eating all my life every single morning is causing a huge glucose spike. Uh, probably not healthy in the long run, but you can't really tell until you're uh, much older and these, you know, these uh, health problems start to actually develop and show themselves. And just, and f- sorry, just to go back to like super basics, why mm-hmm. is a big glucose spike bad? Yeah, so it, it's kind of like, kind of like redlining your car at every stoplight, right? Uh, like you're really putting a lot of stress on the engine. In this case, your pancreas has to work hard to lower those glucose levels, especially if you're not using it. Like if you're, if you're a marathon runner, you know, you eat a pizza before your marathon you'll be fine because your body is, I mean, again, it is stress, but your body is using that energy for something. If you're just kind of dumping sugar into your body, making your, you know, pancreas work, um, but your muscles don't really need this energy, uh, then it ends up going somewhere, right? So either either you gain fat uh, or over and over again, you know, your pancreas having to work hard leads to uh, pre-diabetes, potentially type 2 diabetes, uh, if you keep doing it over and over. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. One of the nice things I learned as well, Molly, was just going for a walk um, for 15 minutes. Man, did that have an impact on lowering my glucose levels. Um, the spikes would just become maybe half as much, a third as much, two thirds as much, you know, depending 
Um, and so a lot of times if I felt like I ate too much, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? I made a bad decision. And I'm like, you know what? I can kind of correct this decision if I just go for a walk. And the, and the little puck that you put on is kind of like a round, oversized, um, you know, Band-Aid. And the filament is a needle, uh, but it is the thinnest needle you could possibly ima imagine. Like, you can't barely see it when you're looking at the puck. Mm. And you use this little button to snap it on. Uh, you push it on, and you don't feel it. So that, that was the thing I had. A, I was like, did I do this right? Um, and then it was like, oh, yeah, I did. Because it's literally such a tiny, I think maybe getting bitten by a mosquito, you would feel more. So I yeah, think for people who are scared of it, it's not very scary. Is that ever going to work without having like a needle like that? Like, is my Apple Watch ever going to track my yeah, Google's yeah, so or Fitbit or it, something? Or my contact that, lens. It, I want a contact lens someday. <laughs> contact lens would be cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the needle is actually used only to apply the filament. So the filament is flexible. It's like a little flexible thing. That's why you don't, you don't feel it under your skin. Um, but totally. I mean, there are, there are companies working. There's a company... Uh, out there called BioLink working on a micro needle version of this, which basically scratches your skin and gets that fluid to come out. Uh, oh. and, and basically measuring those same, uh, measuring those glucose levels in the fluid, but you know, not having to put something under your skin. Um, and, and of course, optical is, is something people have been mentioning for a very, very long time. You know, every year it's kind of coming next year. Uh, but Essentially, the issue there is accuracy, right? Like, how accurate can they get this to be? Um, and you don't want it to be inaccurate just in case people misuse it. For example, if a type 1 diabetic uses it to uh, inject insulin and the device is not accurate, they could essentially hurt themselves, right? And, and that's why the accuracy is so important here. Uh, we are not working with type 1 diabetics. So, you know, if somebody is using insulin, they do need physician oversight. Uh, we typically work with folks who are... Uh, you know, fairly healthy and, and want to monitor their health. Some of them are maybe pre-diabetic or kind of getting close to type 2 diabetes. Tell us about the dietitians and the role they play. I know you have 50 of them now, um, assuming they're working from home. I had very nice interactions um, and surprising ones where they, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but maybe they see uh, on some intranet somewhere, all the spikes that occurred in real time. And this is what I'm imagining. And they just ask you what happened or they look at your food. Obviously, this is all with permission. It's part of the service. Um, but do most people use the dietitians? And what impact does a dietitian being in a chat room with you monitoring this do for you? Yeah, absolutely. So when you sign up, uh, there's actually a health questionnaire and a goals questionnaire. So we're asking you what, what it is that you want to achieve with this program. Uh, so people come in and they say, hey, I want to, um, have, I'm predisposed to, to diabetes in my family and I want to prevent prediabetes, or I want to lose some weight. Uh, and we actually assign a dietitian who uh, happens to be an expert in the thing that you're trying to achieve. So whether that's weight loss, uh, where there's a lot more accountability, uh, and the dietitian really just, you know, working with you and setting goals for you. Uh, and uh, there's some folks who uh, need more education than others. Um, so there's a lot of education around glucose and how to use glucose measurement uh, day to day to understand we, what you should and shouldn't eat. Um, so dietitian is assigned to every single person who signs up. Uh, it's basically free for a month for everyone who signs up. Uh, and then if you want to do it continuously, uh, th there's a small fee on top of our, uh, on top of our monthly subscription fee, uh, where you can work with the dietitian, you know, hands on, uh, 24 seven. You're basically chatting with them through the in-app chat. 
so it's not like a video call or an audio call. You're basically, you know, you're able to ask them questions uh, and then they reach out proactively as well when they see something like a big glucose spike or a big change in your data. Hmm. Let's um, talk about pricing because it's not inexpensive. It's $245 a month base, right? How long do people typically sign up for? And then how much more is the dietitian? Yeah, so you can think of it as kind of a, like a gym membership. We have a cheaper $200 a month version if you sign up for a longer period of time mm-hmm. and 250 if you sign up for the basic three months uh, period. Uh, and the dietitian is an extra $50 on top of that. Got it. Um, so uh, can you imagine too- a scenario where like, I know that uh, our medical system and insurance is not super focused on prevention and wellness, but can you imagine mm-hmm. a future where somebody could have this prescribed and have it be part of their insurance package? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, with so many self-insured employers out there, right, they're trying to optimize for costs. And if you come to them and say, hey, a hundred of your employees are using NutriSense and they love it and they've lost this much weight and they've improved their uh, they've improved their blood sugar. Uh, I don't see why somebody wouldn't be interested in doing it for their company. And, you know, once self-insured employers are on board, uh, it becomes easier to talk to larger health groups as well. Yeah, I can see that being an awesome benefit, J- Jason. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is definitely... Thanks. Thanks. Some money every time we do this. Um, Just putting them on blast. <laughs> well, it is, you know, I, I do think we've been talking about this. We had the land beyond uh, and talking about their sort of, you know, affordable, quote unquote, uh, you know, concierge doctor at 3000 a year. This is a similar price product. You know, these things are not yet cheap. But what I've learned with technology is Uber Black quickly becomes UberX, mm-hmm. becomes mm-hmm. LiftLine, UberPool you know, or jump mobility, Lime scooters, whatever, you know, innovation just keeps happening. And I think we do need to get to a place where we have an honest discussion about what are we spending on healthcare, especially for young people or younger people before the, you know, the plane or the car breaks down. This is like not having a check engine light, or only having a check engine light, but not having what pilots see pilots know the temperature, the speed, the altitude, the oil pressure, how much fuel is in they really have a lot more uh, detail on what's going on with the car. And and that does become a discussion with the maintenance crew, right? And they can see the history of things. And I think this whole IOT movement, Internet of Things, uh, for people who weren't here for it, um, is going to have like this sort of second or third wave where we're going to just have more sensors around I just got a sensor for CO2 monitoring as an example. Mm -hmm. And I've been carrying it around my house with me when I work out and I was like, wow, the CO2 levels in the house are amazing. The HVAC is working well. I have also some sensors for, you know, California fires, Molly, um, just to make sure everything's nice and clean. Um, And then I was working out and I brought the sensor with me. And all of a sudden, for the first time, the carbon monoxide went off. And I was like, what's going on here? It's a problem in the gym. It's like, I'm the problem in the gym. I am running. You're huffing and puffing. I'm huffing and puffing. And then I opened the doors. Uh, and put on the air purifier just to get some air circulation on and it just boom dropped immediately. And I was like, wow, you know, this is why I might be feeling a little dizzy on the treadmill, because mm-hmm. I'm not getting enough oxygen or the carbon monoxide level is triple what it was, you know, previous to the doors being open and the, and the air filter being on. And you know, this is just but one example, I think, temperature sleep with eight sleep We're investors in that company, I think we're going to start to see these items, um, and Alex, I don't know if you agree, become part of a collection where people will drive their own health. And I think that, to me, 
uh, with you know the calm investment as well is what I'm interested in is people taking control uh, of their own health outcomes, people picking their foods wisely, picking their exercise wisely, and just you know making an investment in it in time because it really isn't money. It doesn't seem in in all cases um, you could use this product uh, for the three months right subscription and at least get some basic understanding. And, and it wouldn't you know, be that much compared to what you would pay if you got sick. And if you all of a sudden were a diabetic oh and you had to pay for your insulin, for God's sake, you know, I mean, the amount that people have to pay, like a type one can't help it, right? Their pancreas doesn't operate. Yep. But if Wouldn't you could it be like one type might two. Be, yeah, also might be one visit, right, Molly? Like, right, it might be one visit. Exactly. To a doctor, I mean, I think this, a specialist. And it's yeah. so hard now to like go to the doctor. You, you can't be Time. assured of good care. And so this idea of prevention and wellness and like you're saying, this independent control feels so much more valuable. It saves you in all agency, kinds of ways. Right? I mean, just agency. having agency over your own life and not relying on the government mm -hmm. or the healthcare system or the education system. Like, it's, it's, it's great that we work on those. But mm -hmm. I just think some radical agency um, will actually change it because if your doctor, think about how your, Alex, your relationship with your doctor and your healthcare providers change when you are coming in with your glucose levels, with your sleep patterns, with your weight and how it's changed. When I started doing that, the entire relationship changed. The doctor was like, well, you're on top of this. And I'm like, okay, so what's your advice? He's like, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. really? Like, why do I have a primary care doctor anymore? Like, the, I, I literally did not invest all that much in terms of time or uh, money to have the doctor say, yeah, just you're like the least of my problems. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, what, yeah. what else can I do? He said, not much. It, it really, really has to do with it, <laughs> it really has to do with what doctors are trained to do, right? They're trained to they're trained to diagnose and treat rather than educate and help you help you monitor and help you understand. Mm -hmm. So it, if you think about it as education, right? Like uh, instead of but uh, we used to have tutors, right? People used to be tutored one on one. Um, and if you have that sort of relationship w with a doctor or with an expert, uh, your outcomes are way better than if you're sitting in a you know classroom full of 500 people and just kind of consuming the same generic information because everything is personalized. It's about your data. It's about how you're behaving. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not just be, you know something that kind of applies to everyone because we all learn differently and we all respond to foods differently uh, and we all deal with different health issues, right? So I 100% agree. I think uh, the IoT movement, uh, you know, look at what we've done with heart rate recently. We started with just workout heart rate. Now it's used for sleep uh, yep. detection, right? In your aura ring um, with, uh, I, I think your eight sleep also measures heart rate, right? And sleep, everything. Yeah, I and mean, sleep. It is mm -hmm. literally the quantified self movement. Um, and just, you know, let's call it healthcare agency or your, your own having agency of your own health really is what this is about and getting educated yourself. And it's really very simple. I think mental health falls into this as well. We're very quick. I don't mean to go all Tom Cruise here of, you know, hey, this kid's got a problem. This adult's got a problem. Hey, here's a lot of here's the menu of all the things you can do to your brain. And we can just start flipping chemistry switches here. And right. I, I am Which, not by I the am, way, we know almost nothing about. So yeah, let's definitely get in there and just start. <laughs> exactly. You, <know. laughs> you went there, Molly. I don't want to use this. Molly, don't start jumping on your couch here. We don't want to go full Tom Cruise, but we've done the research. I took all the Tom Cruise drugs. I'm ready to jump don't on the couch. Don't be glib, Matt Lauer. I don't know if you guys remember that. We started yelling at Matt Lauer for being so glib and that Matt Lauer didn't even know what SRIs or like, serotonin what? was 
it's the, it, it literally is Tom Cruise is a hero in some ways for his confrontation with Matt Lauer on that. Yeah. Because he was 100% on the right. He's like, you're reporting on this. Kids are being given these drugs. And everybody's laughing at Tom Cruise. He's like, but you're the person who's on Good Morning America broadcasting to five or 10 million people. And you don't even know the research. Like, mm -hmm. And I think we all have to get this research. If you look, Tom Cruise was advocating for diet, exercise, sleep. Yeah. Uh, and maybe like going out with your friends and having great relationships. If you talk to any therapist, and you know, anybody who's in mental health, they will tell you, uh, how are you sleeping? And uh, what are you eating? Are you exercising? And uh, tell me about the relationships. Do you, do you have positive relationships with people at work and friends? And like, that's where they start. Mm -hmm. And if you actually tackle those four things, you too, will make a movie as great as Top Gun Maverick uh, and you at won't the age, age of 60 and you don't way, age. You will not age. It's either that or Scientology. And I guess I would prefer to believe in sleep and diet. Although I'm starting to wonder. The Scientology <laughs> is basically Scientology a collection to of self-help. No, it's a collection of self. I know people in Scientology, a lot of my close I know, friends. I know, I know. No, it is. It's, and, what it, what it, and listen, I'm, I'm an atheist. But it is a collection of self-help tools, tools that a mad scientist named L. Ron Hubbard, who was a you know, science fiction author, collected. So he kind of did what I'm doing right now. And I'd like to announce that Calicanology will be launching when I'm 60. <laughs> so Alex, would you, you want in on this? Time. It was only a matter Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. No, a new, like a study came out, not to belabor this, but a study came out last week that was like, hey, you know this whole idea that serotonin levels yes. are what cause depression in your brain? Yeah. That's true. not true. There were highly, okay. there were huge doubts about that science when it was reported, but mm -hmm. that is what led to all this, the SSRI treatments. Yeah. And it appears to be inaccurate, a myth, which is why SSRIs work for like, you know, 2% of the population because they're effectively a placebo, but it does like increasingly, right? It's like the more you look into anything, the more you discover that it's like inflammation, hmm. which is diet and sleep. Yep full stop and exercise like it's just it shouldn't be that simple but it is yeah so alex it, tell us uh you know have you stopped taking all of the uppers and downers that it requires to take to be an entrepreneur in this environment <laughs> <laughs> nootropics are you doing Neotropic. i i i'm limiting my coffee intake now to like just what? weekends honestly it just it, it, it no no um, come on come on no, stop come with on. the caffeine that's <laughs> caffeine's great i I am going to selectively. Don't come for this. I'm going to. I'm going to pick the. Um, I'm not going for your coffee. No, I actually I love coffee. Just like <laughs> whenever I start drinking coffee, my tolerance builds up so quickly. I just go from one cup a day to like four cups a day in like a week. Oh, good. And, oh I see. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I try to. Have keep you tried the Terra Cafe? Also a launch investment in syndicate I, investment. I, actually, I've, 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 I've been looking at it. I actually really like it. When well, is the TK? When is the TK two coming out? That's what I'm. Well, I can't for. say, but oh. I will say I have seen it, and it's hot. Here's what I would do. I'd buy the the one that's out right now. It's great. TK2, I don't want to steal any thunder. It will be great too, but you know, it might be more expensive. I don't know. Um, but I would just buy the TK1. Enjoy it. When the TK2 comes out, whenever that is, uh, you gift the, the TK1 to somebody. And it's a nice gift to give somebody. That's my plan. Or I, you know, just move it to your ski house. The uh, the uh, old one, you know, whatever. <laughs> your beach house, whichever. I mean, I don't know if you need it at your beach. Molly, did you move it to your beach house? Because I don't know if you, you do ice coffee there. I put mine in the private plane. On so. the private plane. Perfect. I should have known that. Uh, I actually gave the Terra Cafe to Chamath as a thank you gift because he did a favor for me. It was, it's a great gift, actually, by the way. Hmm. Um, all right, listen. Alex, thank you for letting us invest in your company. Mm -hmm. uh, it was great to get in early. 
continued success. It's fantastic to see you uh, performing so well as an entrepreneur and staying focused. What has been, if you were to give advice to the entrepreneurs listening, subscription businesses and, and product market fit, what do you think the secret to running an organization as a founder is that can hit this vaulted goal of tripling revenue year over year? How did you do it? And, and what advice do you have here as we wrap up? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I give this advice more to technical co-founders uh, because one thing that they forget is to actually find, uh, you know, find find out who their customers are early and learn how to sell to them and learn how to market to them. I mean, it depends on whether you're B two B or whether you're B two C, but uh, like start selling your product as early as possible. Start getting interest uh, as early as possible because a lot of people build for too long before they ship, right? And that's it's sort of a cliche, like they say, ship often. Uh, but a lot of people still, you know, we're all type A, we all, all want this thing to be perfect before we actually ship it and then we, you know, give it to the rest of the world. But uh, having a co-founder who was able to sell while I was focused on uh, mm, building. Division really, of labor. Division yeah. of labor, that's right. And a bias towards? Action. action. There you <laughs> go. Bias towards action. Semper This is a U.S. Marine Corps. And then uh, eventually... Uh, taken on by Amazon in our industry. A bias towards action is critical as a founder and product velocity matters. Uh, and as Reid Hoffman says, if you are not embarrassed by your V1, you ship too late. <laughs> Very true, Reid. Come back on the program. I haven't seen Reid in a while. All right, listen, Alex, continue success. And uh, yeah, keep us updated on your progress. We'll see you in a year. Congrats. Can't wait to try it. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. I guess I'm buying. Take care. Okay, everybody, make sure you tune in tomorrow. I got my boys from Acquired, they're back. The Acquired boys are back. And we're gonna go deep into this VC downturn, what it means for founders, what it means for capital allocators, angel investors, seed funds, and maybe some more SoftBank Vision Fund reflections. And we got some amazing notes on Amazon AMZN, which I think is my second, uh, that's my second pony there, doing pretty well for me. And uh, we'll go into talk a little more about J Trading with the boys, see if they have some uh, insights for me. They're always good. We'll take a couple questions from the Nodi gang. It's going to be an awesome show.